Good morning, church. Uh, if you're new with us today, my name's Yeshua. I'm, I'm the worship pastor here at GLAAD, and um, I normally do what Pastor Clark does, and he normally does what I'm doing, um, but we decided to switch that up this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, t- and turn to Hebrews chapter 1, so we're going to be spending uh, some of our time anyway. Um, it's... It's such a privilege for me this morning to open up our summer series on the book of Hebrews. Um, And to be honest, I I get really excited about this sort of thing. I'm really jazzed about it. Um, I I love just sinking my teeth into scripture. And I'm just going to say something that may seem like a bit of an oxymoron, but, uh, but there's nothing that makes me want to behave like a Pentecostal more than my Baptist roots, right? Like it's, it's the... It's the centrality and deep-rootedness of Scripture to my spiritual formation that just makes me want to raise my hands and dance, right? Like, like you want to hear me speaking in tongues, let's talk about doctrine and, uh, you know, uh, progressive sanctification, right? Um, all right that, one, that one maybe missed you guys a little bit. That's all right. Um, but having said that, uh, I know that that's not how everybody feels about the Bible, uh, particularly regarding the Old Testament. And uh, you're probably wondering, why am I talking about the Old Testament when we're in Hebrews, which is in the New Testament? Um, I just want to address that quickly by reading a a quote from Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline. He says, People will find it exceedingly difficult to understand the New Testament books of Romans or Hebrews, for example, without a grounding in the literature of the Old Testament. I didn't go looking for that quote. I just happened to be reading the book with a friend of mine, and it popped up um, last week or two weeks ago. But uh, he goes on in the chapter to say, One of the great needs among Christians today is simply the reading of large portions of Scripture. Much of our Bible reading is fragmentary and sporadic. So what, what Foster's saying here is that there are huge portions or sometimes even entire books of the Bible that we're missing out on because uh, we're not reading very often. And when we do, it's not a lot, right? Uh, these, these little chunks of scripture that we tend to read, sometimes as little as the verse of the day, right, which are a great catchphrase or, or uh, in, uh, encouragement for the moment, but they can't properly be placed in the greater narrative that the Bible is trying to tell, so uh, let me just give you an example of how, how this can work out. Uh, one of my favorite movies of, of all time is Schindler's List. Um, and there's a scene at the end of the movie where, um, where the war has ended and Oscar's, um, Oscar's now a fugitive because he's part of the Nazi party. But, but all 1,200 of his workers uh, have gathered together and they've given him a gift. They've given him a gold ring and a letter signed by all 1,200 of them saying he's a good man. So that way, if he's captured by the Allied armies, they know not to, uh, you know, he's actually done good. And so they're outside the factory, and he's about to get in his car, and he's about to leave, and, and they give him this gift, and he breaks down weeping. Like, he's just weeping because he wishes he could have saved more lives. And there's this iconic line, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I just think, just telling you guys the story, but there's this iconic line where he says, just one more life, just one more life. 
as great as this scene is, right, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie or not, but as great as this scene is, it only really packs the punch that it's supposed to if you've sat through the previous two hours and 50 some odd minutes, right? Um, and so, so you have to know the full story. And what happens to us regarding the Bible is that we know one or two scenes and we know them really well and they're really great scenes, but when we, when we uh, aren't as familiar with the whole story, we just don't get it as much. When we know the intricacies and the nuances of what this scene means in the greater narrative, then it's really mind-blowing, right? And so the book of Hebrews is exactly that. It's one of these closing scenes in the New Testament that shows that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, uh, particularly saying that to the Hebrew Christians living in uh, the first century. But it also brings tremendous revelation for all people in the New Covenant and even us today. Uh, and so with that said, I'm just going to give you a quick outline for all you type Bayers like me, um, and, and we'll dive right in. So I'm going to do three things this morning. Um, we're going to talk about some, uh, some major concepts or themes that we need to be aware of from the Old Testament in order to understand what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Uh, two, I'm going to give a brief overview of the book of Hebrews. So we're going to take like a 30,000-foot view of the book of Hebrews, and then we're going to get into Hebrews 1, all right? I know it sounds like a lot. It is a lot. Let's just be honest. It is a lot, but um, hopefully, hopefully we'll get out of here before 1. I'm not kidding. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, why do we need to talk about Old Testament themes in history? Why can't we just dive into the book? Well, let's dive into the book. Uh, Hebrews 1, I'm reading from my phone because I don't have this version on my paper Bible, but I do have my, my book here. Don't you fret. Um, it's Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Let's stop right there. Notice how this book doesn't follow the typical format of uh, the pastoral letters. There's no introduction, there's no blessing, there's no greeting, there's, there's it, you know, it's, it's as if the author is saying, uh, where, where were we? Right, long ago, God spoke many times in many ways, right? And so there's an assumption here from the opening sentence of this letter that the audience was familiar with the Old Testament. The author doesn't feel the need to retell history because these things are so ingrained in the culture of the Jewish people that any retelling of history would be redundant. Uh, but for our purposes, we are going to do a bit of uh, retelling of history, and we're going to do it through the lens of three main themes that are going to pop up continually in the Old Testament, uh, and by consequence, the New Testament and in Hebrews as well. And those are uh, dwelling, dominion, and dynasty. Those are the three major themes uh, all throughout the Bible that God intends to dwell with his people, that through his people, God uh, intends to take dominion over the entire earth, and that God has established a dynasty of image bearers. Now, um, so we're going to start right at the beginning. In the beginning, Genesis 1 through 3, uh, we see that God had fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden. He was walking with them in the garden. He's dwelling with them. Genesis 1 also tells us that 
Uh, God gave humanity dominion over all the created order and that we were made in his image. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean physically, or it, it doesn't mean physically, like he's not, he does not have the shape of a man, but rather that we are his image bearers, his representatives on earth. And so a dynasty of image bearers, which uh, Jesus is later called the new Adam, is created. And so right there, right at the beginning of the Bible, we have these three themes that are already introduced, and they continue to be uh, repeated throughout Scripture. And we see that God dwells with his people in the Exodus and, um, during the, their wanderings in the desert, that he is in the cloud, he is in the pillar of fire. Uh, later on, when they build the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle is placed in the center of the camp, God is dwelling with his people. And then uh, the, the temple of Solomon is built and he dwells in Jerusalem, right? And so... Um, that's, that's him dwelling with his people, but God also promises Abraham uh, not only descendants, right, a dynasty, a nation, but also land. He tells uh, Abraham while he's wandering in Canaan that his descendants will take over that land. And so we see those three themes there again. And so uh, for the next thousand years or so, there's, uh, this is something that's passed on from generation to generation, through 400 years of slavery, they're awaiting deliverance into the promised land. Uh, all the while, in God's sovereignty, he's, he places, this is kind of an aside, but it's, it's kind of neat and important. Um, God takes this family of shepherds and puts them in the midst of a nation that hates shepherds. Like uh, we read in Genesis, I believe it's 48, uh, that, that the Egyptians hated shepherds. So they placed the people of Israel in this area called Goshen. And then, so God takes them there, and then he causes them to flourish to the point of oppression and slavery. So that they, and then they continue to flourish even more. So the point, one of the points of that anyway, is so that they wouldn't intermarry with the Egyptians. So that the people that God called would stay pure for himself. And so what God is doing is he's creating and shaping a nation for himself, giving them a distinct culture, language, religious practice. It's, he's, he's forming the dynasty of people that would inhabit the promised land. And so finally, they inhabit the promised land, and by the time David shows up, uh, the, these three major promises seem to be cemented in place, right? God tells David that his son would build a temple for God to dwell in, uh, Israel is not only inhabited the promised land, but under David and Solomon's rule, the nation of Israel reaches its peak in terms of military, political, and financial power. And, and so there's, there's a plan for the dwelling place of God. They have dominion over the land, and the royal dynasty of David has been established by the word of God himself. So this is it, right? We got it. At this point, right around 2 Samuel, if you're, if you're tracking through the Bible, like they think this is it. And yet, we know this isn't true because Solomon falls into sin, like we all do. And then there, while there was a king in Jerusalem that was from the line of David from then until the exile, the scriptures tell us that most of these kings followed their own desires. They didn't follow God. And, and if there was 
uh, ever any change. It was, it was um, rarely real heart change from anyone outside the royal family. And even that might have lasted one or two generations. So clearly this, this wasn't the kingdom that God intended to build. So um, in the midst of all this idolatry, God sends prophets and, uh, to prophesy against his chosen people, prophesying destruction for Israel and Jerusalem and what would eventually result in the exile, uh, where they were taken to Assyria or Babylon for 70 years and, and Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, but anyway, among these prophecies, there was also a mention of a new kingdom and a coming Messiah or Savior who would restore not only the people of Israel, but all of humanity to God, establishing a new eternal dynasty where God would dwell with his people forever. And so that, in the tiniest of nutshells, is the gist of the Old Testament. And so you guys are really excited about this, just as I am. So but these these promises are so ingrained in Israel's history and culture, and they help explain the conflict and political unrest that we see present in the gospel narratives as well by the time Jesus is born, and, they, and, and it helps explain Israel's desire for a king. And so why is this important? Like, why did I just spend all this time explaining that? Well, because we've taken a bird's eye view of the Old Testament and barely scratched the surface of, of, of these themes. And the author of Hebrews assumes his audience is not only familiar in a way that we just did a five-minute recap, but also they know the intricacies and nuances of the Old Testament. And so if we're going to spend the next eight or ten weeks in this book of Hebrews, we need to at least have some concept of what's being explored here. So uh, that takes us to our bird's eye view of Hebrews. Um, So over the course of the letter, we see that the author is going to compare Jesus to to these pillars of the Old Testament or these themes. In chapters 1 and 2, we see that uh, Jesus is greater than the angels in the law. Uh, In chapters 3 and 4, we see that he's greater than Moses who received the law and passed it to the Israelites, right? This became, the law of Moses became the basis for uh, all cultural, religious, and political systems in the nation of Israel. So uh, we also see that because the people rebelled in the desert, they were not allowed to enter the promised land when God intended for them to, so they ended up wandering through the desert for 40 years. Um, But because Jesus is greater than Moses, and we too, now in the new covenant, can enter that rest, not in the land of Israel, but as part of the new kingdom, the, the new creation, the already but not yet. So in chapters 5 to 8, we see that Jesus is greater than the priestly system And in fact, uh, he comes from a better line of priests than Aaron. He comes from the line of Melchizedek, who was was this ancient uh, king and priest in in the city of Jerusalem that at the time was called Salem. Uh, Therefore, in chapters 9 and 10, we see that if Jesus is greater than the Israelite priesthood, his sacrifice is also greater than what they had. 
where one sacrifice needed to be made on a daily basis and others on an annual basis, Christ's sacrifice was made once and for all. Not only that, but, um, but his one sacrifice is sufficient to atone for all sin, for all humanity, forever. And it's this sacrifice that's the basis for the new covenant, which was written about by the Old Testament prophets. So the overarching story in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is the Son of God who came down to dwell among us. He's the hope for the new creation, the kingdom or dominion of God. And because he's the perfect sacrifice, he's been exalted to the highest place of honor and is the great high priest who is seated at the right hand of God. And in doing so, he's established his eternal dynasty that will be fully realized when he returns. So that, up to the end of chapter 10, is the basic flow of the book of Hebrews. So who's still with me? All right, there's three of you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so let's, let's read this entire passage together. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through, through whom he created the world. He is the exact radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Let's just stop there for a second. Remember earlier when we talked about um, uh, Adam? And being image bearers, here in Hebrews he says that while Adam was essentially the first image bearer, when he sinned, we all became sinners. But rather, Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, not to commit sin. And he, therefore, is uh, higher than the angels. Um, So he's the, uh, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Let's stop there again for a second. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's a direct quotation from 2 Samuel 7, where God is making a covenant with David about his royal dynasty. So in 2 Samuel 7, we see that he's talking about Solomon. But in Hebrews, we see that it's actually a prophecy about Jesus, the everlasting king. Um, in verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. 
Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Again, another prophecy from Psalm 102 regarding the king. And to which of his angels, verse 13, has, has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? There at the end we see uh, another quote from Psalm 110 where the whole psalm, in fact, is in reference to the coming king who's going to rule forever. And that's also where we get the passage about him being a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. But I just want to paraphrase um, David Guzik, who is a pastor in California, and he wrote a, a study on Hebrews chapter 1, and he says, All of these quotes from the Old Testament are in reference to God the Father, Yahweh, but are now being applied to God the Son in order to prove that he indeed is God, the second person of the Trinity. Verse 9 in particular where it says, uh, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. Verse 9 in particular shows the interaction between the two persons of the Trinity through divine inspiration, where the Father is speaking to the Son. So why is all of this such a big deal? Because right, this is all just a bunch of factual stuff. Why do we need to establish that Jesus, the Son, is greater than the angels? The answer comes uh, in chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, um, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The, the message here that the author is talking about that has been declared by angels is actually the law. The law of Moses. And, it, and, and that idea comes from this verse in Deuteronomy 33 where uh, it was traditionally assumed even in first century times, and other passages of the New Testament uh, verify this, the traditional assumption was that uh, Moses received the law from the hand of angels. So when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, and the people were partying down below, the angels were hand-delivering the law to him. Um, so, so we all know how the first century Jews felt about the law, Right? And, and we see that in the gospel narratives um, and how they felt about Moses who received the law and gave it to the people of Israel. And so in order for the original audience of first century Jews to buy into the rest of the book, 
into the rest of the letter, we need to start by establishing Christ's superiority over everything, including angels. So it's imperative that we first establish that Jesus is greater than the angels. And that leads us then into the superiority over Moses and the law and the sacrificial system and the priests. So aren't you glad you came to church on Canada Day weekend? All right, so definitely not the most feel-good, applicable sermon you've ever heard in your life, right? But here's the thing. We need all this background information in order to make, the, to make sense out of the rest of this series. And there are great applicable things in, in, in all of Scripture, right? We know that from 2 Timothy. It says all of Scripture is God-breathed. And, and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Useful. Useful, yeah, maybe. I'm sure the message says that. Good old, good old Eugene. Um, so... But so we need these, we need the background information in order for the rest of this letter to make sense to us. In fact, the whole uh, crux of this series is, is, comes from Hebrews 6. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. These truths are a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. See, the people of Israel didn't just have an intellectual knowledge of their scripture, but rather they lived it every day. Like their culture, their religion, their entire existence as a people depended on God's promise. Because I, I, have you ever thought about it? I lived in Thornhill for, uh, for a year and I worked at a, at a Music school, and uh, you guys probably don't even know where Thornhill is. It's, it's a suburb of Toronto, uh, and there's a lot of Jewish people there. Like, it's, you know, it's a Jewish neighborhood. And I worked in this music school, and I would go into everybody's houses, and they were all Jews. And I had this, I had this amazing opportunity because my name is Hebrew. Um, like, they all just, I, I kid you not, I got the job because of my name, Right. <laughs> Um, so I would go into these houses, and, and it was a great cultural experience. But so often, since interacting with, with this community, I think how, like nobody else has, the, has a starting point. No other ethnic group has a starting point that says, there's this guy in the desert that walks out of his tent, and God says to him, you are going to produce a nation. And 5,000 years later, they're all in the north end of Toronto. <laughs> right? Like, 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 there's no other ethnic group that has that privilege. We can't say that about the Scots. We can't say that about the, uh, any Europeans. can't say that about the natives. We can't say that about Latin Americans. The people of God, the children of Israel, were called and, and created as a nation by God himself. So their entire existence depends on the truths of the Old Testament. And so what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is, I wonder if we, 
as the 21st century North American church can say the same about our dependence as a church on the scriptures. Like, we're not Israel, right? I, don't, I know that there's confusing theology on that. Some people think we're the new Israel. We're the church, regardless of whether we're the new Israel or not. And so, um, you know, we're, the Old Testament isn't a, a story just about Israelites. Isn't just the story of the Jews. It's a story about humanity and God's relationship with humanity. Because it doesn't matter if it was then or if it's now, there's a general cycle that tends to take place, right? God saves, we repent, we follow, and then we sin again. But he is faithful to save, and so we repent, and we follow, and we sin. And he saves, we repent, we follow, we sin. And it doesn't matter. Like, like now in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we're working towards progressive sanctification, right? Like we're being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ every day more and more. But we know also through our New Testament scriptures that we're not going to reach perfection on this side of eternity. Right? It's only in the day of Christ Jesus when he returns and makes everything new that we'll reach perfection. And so whether it be our youngest in the nursery or the oldest among us seniors, we're following this pattern of God rescuing our repentance, um, our, our following him, but then we sin again, inevitably. It's just going to be the case. And so when we become more knowledgeable, when we dive into the scriptures, when we when we take more than a cursory reading of the passages or the verses that make us feel good and dive into the truths and nuances and the difficult places in our scripture, we'll see a God that we never knew existed. We'll see a God that is so much greater, so much more patient, so much more loving, so much more holy, so much more jealous for our love and our affections. And a God who really is superior to everything. So let's not be casual, church, about our knowledge of Scripture or the relationship we have with God. May we be people of the Word whose truth brings hope and assurance, and is an anchor for our souls. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for the truths that we know. We thank you for... uh, We thank you for our, our scriptures. We thank you that no matter where we are, you are there to meet us. No matter what our level of understanding is, there is truth for us to receive. We thank you for your uh, salvation, for your patience, for your uh, the way that you comfort us when we're in need, for the way that you teach us, 
grow us towards maturity. Just pray that we, as a congregation, as Glad Tidings Arm Prior, would be known as people of the word. That we wouldn't just be Sunday morning Christians, but that the truths of Scripture would permeate our lives on Tuesday and Thursday afternoon when we're taking our kids to soccer, when we're in a traffic jam, God, that you would be our everything, that you would be our all in all. It's your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.